but we do have to take care of local business. And the local business is good. Good especially for the Stony Brook Seagulls women's basketball team. They made a trip up north, and it paid off for them with their fourth straight win. And, uh, Ken, the good things just keep on happening for this team. Yeah, you know, looking at uh, both squads, the women's program definitely stepped up and showed up this week. No question about it. Again, big win at Vermont on Wednesday and following up with an even bigger win against UNH today. And UNH squad, they're struggling a bit for sure, but Stonybrook, they're proving they're still among the most dominant teams in the American East Conference. Four straight wins, winners of six out of their last seven. And honestly, you guys, a big reason why they have so much success is just because of how dynamic the offense is. Virtually every game now, including these past two, they have at least four scorers hitting double digits in points. And Jake, I know you, of course, and Greg have had a chance to watch this team firsthand. And the great thing I see with this team is that it's starting to find itself and establish its game and impose its game on other teams. The Vermont game, which uh, Greg and I did, was a perfect example of that. Vermont plays a similar style to Stony Brook, but they tried to chuck threes left and right, weren't hitting them. Stony Brook didn't need to hit them because they were doing what they did best, stretch front court play and draw a lot of fouls. And it worked for them, and every formula they've tried so far has been working for them. Now, the video gets around. Everybody knows that, part of the usual game prep for any team. But you can study the video at Stony Brook. You know what they're going to do, but they're just going to keep on doing it until somebody stops them. Well, Matt, you know, I think they're just so athletic with their guards that they're able to push the, the, the pace of play. And then they have that nice compliment on the inside with a couple of the bigs, uh, including Wool. Where I really love her, her shooting motion, just watching her play the other day on Wednesday. I was very impressed with the way that she played. And, you know, I also, I also liked and I thought had a very nice game today was Boucher when she gets in off the bench. She is a real spark for the team as well, too. Yeah, both big compliments. Good. And and especially just on Wool, you know, her coming in last season, but really this season, I think, really stepping up in her role. And what makes her dangerous is she's a big who's able to shoot inside and out. And a lot of teams don't really strategize of planning against her defensively, or rather when she's on the offense outside of the perimeter. You know, she's usually someone who's so consistent inside because defensively she's a great glass cleaner for the squad. But even in today's game, for example, there weren't a lot of three-pointers going down on either side, but Wool was left wide open in the left corner, and she drained a three-pointer because not a lot of teams really expect her to be shooting from outside the arc. And she was able to produce 12 points today and in Vermont's game as well, uh, be a dominant scorer. I think we're in, or in terms of scoring in double digits. You know, Kenneth, I think that's a good point because what she does is she pulls the bigs out to play defense away from the basket, and it gives the guards an opportunity to really attack the hoop. And she does have that nice shooting motion. I think, Matt, we talked about it the other night. We felt like, you know, she has a very European-esque feel to her game. That's what I was about to mention. You, I was got to say you said that. You just did again. That is a perfect way to describe her game. 
But go and on. And I do think – I'm sorry. I do think you're you're right, though, Kenneth, about their, their – um, I noticed today that their free throw shooting was a little down, you know, and that has been kind of like their bread and butter a little bit. Not shooting great from the three-point arc, though. You know, still at 15% yeah, today, right? 15% today. That was, I think, among the lowest all season. <laughs> yeah, 46 on the floor, which I thought was a good effort for them yeah, that's big. as well, too. You know, and, and I think they did what they were supposed to do to a UNH team today. Right. Uh, I think Vermont put them in more peril because I think Vermont had some some a little bit more dynamic um, guards and, and they had a couple of bigs that they were able to put in and, and really frustrate some of the bigs for uh stony brook but you know they went up to uh to unh today and i think they cleaned up the way that they were supposed to you know and that's kind of what you begin to expect matt what you were talking earlier four in a row you're beginning to find who you are you go up and and get a win today the way that you expected to win and i think that's the 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 maturation that they're in right now the only thing that bothers me though from today's box score in particular this is a game of course that was on the road that we didn't air was the fact that they took 19 three-pointers, which is really not their game, and hit only three of them, which is nobody's game. Nobody wants to hit three for 19. <laughs> but look at how far ahead they were. They might as well see if they can establish something here. But that, I'm afraid, first of all, any aspect of a team's game that's considered a weakness is something you have to be watching out for down the stretch. And this is the stretch. This is the conference run. And we will get into that because we have some great news for you folks. NJIT lost the game. We have some bad news too. Albany still hasn't, but we'll get into that. But that is something, again, that opposing teams are going to be looking at. If we plug up the inside, push them out to the perimeter, and they're checking threes all day long, they're not going to hit them. Yeah, and I good. Sorry, Kenneth, you go. All right, uh, for yeah. just for the Stony Brook squad, you know, it's to me what makes them so dangerous. As uh, just to reiterate again, is just their guards. You know, Annie Warren being an example of that, averaging I think fourteen points per contest. She led the game against Vermont with sixteen. Uh, just uh, her ability along with Gigi Gonzalez and Erlet Scott, those three really just being so great, both in terms of scoring and passing, where they could do it down low, you know, do a mid range. And even today, you know, Gonzalez made a great, that great dish to Wool for the open three pointer, just driving down uh, towards the basket because they just pull in uh, all the guards and defenders to where, you know, strategizing against Sunnybrook, you, you kind of think, are it's the center of this offense or Gonzalez. And then you leave a player open and they're able to convert more often than not. Greg. You know, it's funny between Anastasia Warren and Leah Mori wool. Both of them had decent field goal percentages over in general, five for 10, five for 11. Uh, Warren was two for six and three. A more, uh, Leah Mori was uh, one for five. And, when you look at that, that means Wool was four for six inside the arc, and that means uh, Warren was three for four inside the arc. So that proves our point once again, that if they drive and draw lots of fouls and you know and take shorter shots, they're in their game. But as soon as – and 
again, they had a comfortable lead. They could afford to do it. But in a tight game, that could be a deciding factor. Like we saw against New Jersey. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think you, you, you're you really hitting on it. If they get caught in a three-point shooting competition here, in the, in like you were saying against NJIT, where they're forced out into that action, it means their transition game has been uh, slowed down. It means they're really not playing the pace of play that they want to play. Man, I think if you bring up a good point, today is today. Right, you have the opportunity to to let it fly a little bit, see if you can get somebody hot, see if you can maybe get somebody find the find the flame a little bit from the outside. Um, but in in a real heated competition, right, that that's not going to be what they're looking to do. And then how do you inject transition offense if it becomes a half court type of of game that could I I think could really hurt the Seabulls. I count that a little bit just because in, in cases where they've been pressed, especially in the half court, I think he's done a good job giving it to one of those bigs and then finding an outlet pass to you know one of those guards on the wing and getting scores that way, where they're still able to find a way to cut inside. And yeah, maybe they don't rely on the three game as much in those scenarios, but you know, this, this team has proven they're multidimensional, which is huge, because I feel like the same critiques we're kind of giving this women's program could really be applied more towards the men's side, as we saw this week against Vermont, to where that was an example of you had a three-point shooting going on, and eventually Vermont won out, and Silverbrook offense just shut down, you know, as soon as Vermont had a, a pretty substantial lead. You know, in Silverbrook's case, I haven't seen them in any game so far this season, you know, really shut down, you know, even when they've fallen behind. They've had a couple losses already, you know, but still, it, to me, they're still finding ways to keep that offense up and finding ways to adjust and adapt in defenses. Is this one swap? And, and go ahead, Greg. You know, I just think when you're, when you're four and one in the conference and you're on a four game winning streak, uh, it's easy for us to point out and be critical. Yeah. Right. You know, I think that's the time where it's kind of like, all right, let's find something that they're not doing well, potentially. And I, you know, and I, if that's it, then, then that's it, but they are playing beautiful basketball. Agreed. You know, they, they are playing this. They're playing the style that they want to play, you know, and that, that would be the one critique would be the three point, but you know, Hey, yeah. they yeah. could get it going and that could become something that becomes um, maybe not the, the, the centerpiece of their game, but certainly something that could be uh, like a utilitarian part, you know, like they do it and they can complete it when necessary. Agreed. And it's funny too, because we you touched on it earlier, really, they're the team that we see a lot of similarities in Stony Brook is NJIT, which is all the one team that was better than Stony Brook. And, and now they lost today. So now they're at the same record as Stony Brook with four and one. But statistically, both of these squads are nearly identical. You know, they're one and two in the conference in terms of scoring in conference action. You know, margins of victory are pretty close shooting wise. Both teams, well, NJIT has the better shooting percentage at 44% to 37. But in terms of field goals made, it's only a five a field goal difference in NJIT's favor. And defense-wise, they're nearly identical. So, you know, it's, I feel like really that game, the one loss they had so far, kind of shows those flaws and shows kind of what Seals need to improve on if they want to repeat, repeat as conference champions. Okay, so yeah. go ahead, Greg. You know, and I, I, I think an, an early season conference loss is not necessarily a bad thing. If it refocuses you, um, get you to kind of think about where you need to improve, 
what you need to work on and then continue to figure out how to highlight what you're good at. You know, that that could be a foregone or a forgotten game by the time March rolls around. Right. You know, if everything works out for the Seawolves and but could also be a very influential game on the team as the year goes on, because it refocuses you and gets you to play the way that you want to play. Great. OK, so let's take a look at how this affects the Seawolves in the standings right now. As we said, NJIT finally lost a game. Only problem is. They lost to the now the only undefeated team in the conference, which happens to be Albany. Albany won 62-54 uh, yesterday in Newark. Uh, Vermont beat UMBC 69-36, and UMass Lowell Hartford was postponed. And also, there was a game supposed to be between Maine and Binghamton today that was also postponed. That's another can of worms, and we've discussed that ad nauseum. We are going to find out, obviously, when some of these makeups are going to be scheduled. There's supposed to be a men's game at home yesterday and against New Hampshire. That game got rescheduled from Monday, February 7th. That is on wsb.fm slash sports, by the way. And anytime we do get an update, we'll let you know. Only problem is we only found out about that one Friday morning. So these things come on very short notice. That also means that if you want to go watch some of these games, constantly check the schedule because it is changing on an almost daily basis. Friendly warning there. So Albany, of course, is a future opponent of the Seawolves. They have not faced them yet this year. As a matter of fact, if we want to go to the schedule, we'll tell you when they face them. This Saturday at home, 145 here on WUSB. In the meantime, there's a game on Wednesday against Binghamton. The men play tomorrow. Uh, but th- they will be facing the only undefeated team in the American East Conference as of this moment. I haven't looked at Albany's schedule yet. I don't know if there's a game in between, but I'll tell you that right now. I actually have I actually have it up in front of me right now. They played NJIT. Um, right. Yeah, yesterday, right? So then they go tomorrow. Um, excuse me, tomorrow at Hartford. Wednesday they got UMBC home, Ooh. and then Saturday is at Stony Brook. So they're playing uh, four games in a week here. So I think that sets up nicely for the SeaWolves, um, having them come into Stony Brook and really being peppered with some uh, with some heavy competition you know, right up until that game is played. So I think that's really good for the Seawolves. And they have a weird start time Albany does on Wednesday, an 11 a.m. start for a basketball game on Wednesday, which I think is an odd time. That's really weird. I mean, you'd expect that tomorrow. I mean, our game is at 3 o'clock because right. of Martin Luther King Day. And the Knicks have a game at noon. And you know, it's you know, afternoon basketball is a tradition on MLK Day, which is great. But – in the middle of the week, that early on a Wednesday, that means it's probably the only time they could have gotten time in the arena for, which, again, is something that we're going to be looking at when oh, some of these games finally do get made up. The last thing, as we say over and over again, any conference wants is to have to decide a regular season champion or playoff seeding, for that matter, based on 
teams playing different numbers of games and not necessarily facing each other. They want everybody to play the same number of games against the same teams, and it's fair that way. Yeah, we saw both of those you last year. You don't want to lose year. your division by half a game. Exactly. We saw both of those last year with the women's basketball tournament in the American East being set up that way, where six, four teams pulled out. A couple didn't really get to finish their season, so you had a bunch of you know teams who didn't have the same number of games played in the season with seating being set up. Obviously, it worked in Stonerberg's favor. They won it all, and obviously they the baseball season uh, ending the way it did last year because of well, that was the weather more and because of like rain, right? But it still decided not on the game itself, right? But in any case, the NCAA wants a champion by Selection Sunday because they want to be able to seed said champion properly. If somehow Hartford pulls off a miracle in the American East tournament, either men or women and they get in, they're playing. If a traditional power like a Stony Brook of Vermont or an Albany get in, they're probably a 13. Yeah, agreed. I would, Go ahead, agreed. Yeah, I would say I would say especially in the women's in the women's bracket as well too. You know, in that one, you know, 13, 14 for the men as well too, you know. Um, but I think with the women, if it's Stony Brook that gets in, you're looking at three years in a row of making the the, uh, the NCAA tournament, and then and I think that kind of uh, uh, elevates you in the status of the the NCAA tournament. Well, that's what makes that Washington State win so significant. That team finished sixth in the Pac-12 and was a nine seed in last year's tournament, and Stony Brook beat them at home. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, because that that shows uh, a strength of schedule when you can go out of schedule and win. This it, it kind of improves the America East's view within the conference committee within the uh, tournament committee. Especially because the last two seasons, you know, those programs have only been improving in terms of seeding projections. You know, based on things like bracketology and you know just doing uh, the stats and analysis on it. Because back in the or eventually ended up being the canceled NCAA tournament because of the, the virus. Uh, some girls projected 15 seed. And then when it came time last year, I was either 14 going up against number three, Arizona State. So, yeah, that's something that's definitely, they're not thinking about it. They're focused on the next game. But, you know, just for us here, it, they're slowly moving up. And I think as long as they continue to carry that success they've had for a lot of the season, especially the past few games, you know, they, they definitely write this hot streak all the way into the NCAA tournament. Well, I it's think really a tale is- of two cities with the American East. Go ahead. I think the key is when you get hot here, you know, like we were talking on Wednesday, you know, is NJIT hot early and then you kind of cool off late. I mean, you love winning as a coach and it, and, and, and it, as a player, of course you love winning as well too, but you know, there is something to, to coming out and playing really well early. And then you're almost kind of like hanging on and hoping you continue to finish strong um, where sometimes it's easy. You lose a couple games early and you can kind of, you know, climb the mountain a little bit as the season goes on and then really propel yourself and get going, you know? So I don't know. I don't know which is right and which is wrong. You love to go undefeated, <laughs> you know, but well, it is a tale of two also- cities. When you take a look at the streaks that these teams are on, Albany's got the longest active one in the conference right now, seven straight. Seagulls have won four in a row. NJIT had a nice streak going before Albany stopped it. Okay, Maine is back to return to winning ways, and they're 3-2 and two in the conference. 
Vermont, of course, they won after Stony Brook beat them earlier in the week. But your bottom five teams are all on losing streaks. Beamson's lost three in a row. Lowell's lost four in a row. UMBC's lost 11 in a row. Hartford's lost 13 in a row. And New Hampshire's lost 10 in a row. And the only reason Hartford is above New Hampshire in the standings is they're 0-2 and, and New Hampshire's 0-4. Yeah, it is, you know, so, unlike the men who we're going to transfer to now, you know, it's, I, I don't, the race isn't necessarily as competitive, I think, in the women's squad. You've got definitely four or five teams you're pretty confident is going to make it that you could really choose from, you know, like uh, NGIT, uh, Vermont, Stony Brook. You Albany, you know, on the men's side, you know, it's still kind of up for grabs. Well, you mentioned the conference, Matt, and, you know, you look at the upcoming schedule, you really got to take care of business if you're the women. And with Saturday's matchup against Albany, you know, you, you go all the way down to the bottom of the schedule and you, you play at Albany to end the season. That could be, you know, that could be the decider. It's true. Or you yeah. can decide for a two or three seat, yeah. Yeah, no doubt about well, it. Stony Brook, at this point, forget about the preseason hype. Stony Brook has reason to believe that it is the best team in the conference, and they'll have a chance to prove it when they face Albany on Saturday. And But, of course, things can happen. COVID like can happen. Saw. It's already been yeah. happening. Yeah. So... Or, Taking a or, look. Thing, or the offense kind of taper off, just kind of just transitioning to the men's side now. The offense taper off to where you know, an offense that was there you know, during the weekend or you know, a few games ago isn't really there anymore, and you're going up against defenses who have an answer for your game plan. Well, speaking of which, the last game the men played was uh, earlier this week at Vermont on Wednesday, while the women were playing, of course, at home, which is the policy in the America East and they were dealt arguably the worst loss they've had so far this year. Wagner was a stinker on December 4th. Let's be honest. Florida, we write off because they are, because they're Florida, but Vermont 98 to 65, your main rival, at least athletically, if not necessarily traditionally, Albany is obviously, this game, wow. Vermont outscores Stony Brook 53-39 the first half, 45-26 in the second half, and just dominates end-to-end and basically shows Stony Brook who's still boss. Well, yeah, no no doubt about it. It, it, was, uh, it was an ugly game, and, and we've seen times where this – you know, Stony Brook men's basketball team can become a little too reliant on the three-pointer. And, you know, when it when it's not going down, it can get ugly fast. And I think that's part of what played into it the other night for them. Well, the women can compensate when they're not hitting from three because we've seen it. I mean, you saw the box scores in the last few games. They will drive. They will go down to the low post, they'll draw fouls, they'll go to the line when the three isn't working. Yeah. So on, on top of that, too, so the, women, the women play real good defense, right? the best in the conference on NGIT. You know, the men were True. shooting 55% that first seven from the field, 
problem is it really doesn't matter when Vermont's shooting 20 of 29 for nearly 69% rate, including 11 three-pointers in the first half alone. It's just sick what they did. 19 for 30. Did I read that right? Yes. 19 <laughs> for 30 from three-point range. That's nearly two-thirds. That's 63.3%, If in case you're wondering. But 11 for 16, as Ken just said. How do you stop that? Yeah, and Work in that the first... perimeter, push them out, make them, make them drive. That's what you do. And in that first but half, it wasn't necessarily, yeah, it wasn't necessarily being lackadaisical because I thought for the most part they were they were still hanging in there against Vermont really until the end of the first half, final couple minutes. But you know they were still on the same gear. I thought because Sunbrook did shoot eight of thirteen from three point range that first half, which doesn't equal Vermont's doing, but you're still around that area, you know. And again, both teams shot about fifty percent, so it's not like Vermont necessarily played tremendous defense on the Seawolves. Problem really came in that second half where Vermont just kept piling it on and on and on. And you saw this change to where the offense kind of shut off. You know, it switched really from, I thought, team play to guys trying to play hero ball. And, you know, for as good as guys like Jenkins and Green and Roberts and Alani have been this season and Alani for his career as a Seawolf, you know, playing hero ball in this scenario, especially against a Vermont team, just isn't going to get it done. And it's something, honestly, they should know better, especially a veteran like Olani, I'm not saying he did individually, but just more, you know, as a team, because for Olani, him being there seasons ago or last season, they did be Vermont. That came off great team play. And that just wasn't there in the second half. And that offense just came to a complete halt. And that allowed Vermont to just dominate the Seawolves on both ends of the ball. You know, so, I think it's a good go reflection. I think it's a good reflection game for Stoney because I'm going to, I'm going to think about it in, in two different ways. Number one, you know, sometimes teams just don't miss and, and, and no matter what you do, they don't miss. So you have to take a look at yourself and say, were we not playing defense or were they just on fire? And I think that's the first part of it. And then I think Kenneth, I think you bring up a good, a good point for the, the second, the second piece here is it's a time to reflect on what you do in response to that. And if the response to a team hitting their shots is you go and play hero ball, and there's really no flow to the offense. You're giving the other team more opportunities now because you're not hearing your shots and you're trying to do more than you should. Then that's an opportunity for you to reflect on, on what you did and improve upon what you did there. Listen, if a team's on fire, there's nothing you can do. Hand in the face, they're still hitting shots. Away you go. But you can have an impact on what you do, right, in that regard. And you're never as good or as bad as you think you are. Right. So I think that might be hopefully for the Seawolves, you know, a lesson from Wednesday night. They're not 98 to 65. Yeah, but can they can they trim enough? And just to on that, too, game? really, the crazy part to me is all 19 three pointers from Vermont. They came from the wing. So it wasn't in any corner <laughs> threes. All right. They were all on the, on the left or right side you know, of the wing. And I think maybe one at the top circle or a top key. But, you know, these guys, it's not like they were setting up, you know, in the corner, getting that short shot open. No, her, a lot of them, especially in that second half, there was just no defense being applied, no pressure being applied on these Vermont shooters. And, you know, you see guys on the transition, you know, maybe on the pick and roll or on the pass, and they're just two or three steps behind. And, again, that was really evident in that second half. And that was a huge difference maker is just the team shut off in 
the last 20 minutes. They went one for 10 in 20 minutes of action from three during those final 20 minutes. Well, and I think it goes back to what Matt, Matt was saying. I'm sorry, Jake, and then I'll let you go. Then it just goes back to what Matt was saying. Then they're not just playing good defense. They're not getting them off the line. They're not moving them off their spot. They're just allowing them to do what they want to do. Jake, I'm sorry. No, no worries. Uh, I think another thing to look at is kind of what's happened with, uh, you know, the men's basketball team in terms of their schedule. Um, you know, since this new year has come upon us, they've had, you know, a couple postponements to start off January. And then they had that home game against Maine where they, you know, got off to a hot start, had a 15 point lead at the half and let Maine come all the way back and almost, almost take it away. They had a couple key buckets at the end of that one, but kind of since, um, you know, that halftime in that game, they haven't looked like themselves. And I wonder if, you know, these postponements and having a long break and play, yes, it can, you know, help you rest up and maybe get some, you know, key players like Alani healthy, but, um, you know, it can also add a little rust to the game and get you somewhat out of sorts as well. So, Jake, do you so, think that the postponement today was a good or a bad thing for him? Uh, you know, it. <laughs> I was actually thinking about it, um, you know, when uh, Matt had actually told me that earlier in the week, because um, I usually, you know, obviously I like to call the games and uh, I wasn't able to call this one, but since it, it's getting postponed, there's a chance I might be able to call it. So in my head for me, you know, selfishly, I was like, you know, maybe it's good. I could call the game, but um, for them, I think it could, you know, make them think, you know, potentially overthink this loss. Um, you know, you know, it's all de depending on how you look at it. You could overthink the loss and say, you know, what's wrong with us overthink it. Or you could say, all right, a little time to, you know, uh, sit back and kind of, you know, maybe look at the tape or go over, you know, better game planning for, when, you know, either your threes aren't going down or how to, you know, make sure you force those guys off the three-point line, forcing them to drive. So that way, if you are giving up points, it's twos instead of threes. Yeah, I feel like that that answer, we're going to really see it tomorrow based on how the Seawolves play and the results of that. You know, for example, if it's another, you know, big loss, uh, this time coming against a team against UMBC, who the Seawolves have struggled against recently, then, yeah, it, it kind of goes to show that, you know, these changes are hurting the Seagulls, but also they're not doing themselves any favors if the offense that showed up in that second half and the defense that wasn't there, you know, is what they bring to the table tomorrow. Because they got three games they play this week. And like I said last week, this is the hardest part of their schedule in Vermont, UMBC, and then Binghamton. So, you know, this is a team and an, a week where they got to figure it out because they got three games being played. And only about two days of rest. I think this is when you got to see the leadership of the of the team. Who, what players are going to be the team leaders that galvanizes that unit to get them back on track? Right? Who's it going to be? Not to put the game on their back, but who's it going to be to unify that team to get them playing together? Right? I think that's going to be the key for them on uh, uh, tomorrow. As a matter of fact. Okay, so UMBC tomorrow. They have played a couple games so far in the American East Conference. They lost to UMass Lowell by two, beat NJIT by 20, and got stomped on by Vermont in similar fashion to what happened to Stony Brook yesterday. 86-69. And yes, Vermont 
hit a bunch of threes again. 13 for 28 this time. Finn Sullivan got really hot, 6 for 12 from beyond the arc. And you got basically them doing the same thing. So UMBC and Stony Brook are in a very similar position. Both suffered nasty losses to the same team going into this game. Should be a very interesting matchup tomorrow. Great. It's two teams, I think, that you know really want to prove you know that they are among the better teams in the conference. We always know how good Vermont is because you know they're regular season champ more often than not. I think they have been for the last uh, what is it now four seasons, right? Five seasons since mm-hmm. 20, 2016, just about. Or last year, I don't I don't believe they were, but it's just to the point, you know, they're always a one or two seed. And I think for both UMBC and Stony Brook, it's really proving that you know they they should be right there, you know, with uh, the Vermonts or the NJIT, who's really finding success. And UMBC, they got a lot of play for too, because last year they weren't even able to really finish out their season. So this is the farthest they've gone in quite a while. Okay, so the agenda for the Seawolves men and women, both will be playing on Wednesday. The women will be at Binghamton, and the men... Will be home against Binghamton. Well, the women will be home against Binghamton, and the men will be at Binghamton. Let me read that correctly, because the women's game will, of course, be on WUSB six fifty-five start, as is what we normally do on Wednesdays, and then they're both in business on Saturday, as women will be home against Albany. And which, as of now, and probably will be by the time this game is played, still undefeated in the American East Conference. And the men will be at Albany later that night at 7 p.m. So it's going to be a week that will not necessarily be defining, but definitely an opportunity for the Seawolves to uh, pull ahead and you know maintain their position in the American East Conference. For both sides. Agreed. Now you're starting to enter the heart of the season, and this is where things really start to pick up, and you start finding out, you know, who teams really are and who's bringing what to the table. Yeah, are you a contender or are you a pretender? That's what we're going to find out, I think, in the next couple games, right? Are we really, or are we, are we really going to have an exciting team, or are we going to have a team that we're going to say, okay, they got a puncher's shot in the conference tournament? You know, I think that's what you're looking at. That's also cool. Well, one of the things that I see, at least right now, we know Vermont's good, and we know Vermont's going to be in the Seawolves' way. We don't really know who else is going to be in the Seawolves' way en route to an American East Championship. We know Vermont's going to be a problem. No one else has really established themselves as a potential pothole on the road to the championship yeah and agreed i think similarly too is you know for teams like vermont and uh you albany and you know for you know they you kind of have those players the two who you know you kind of circle and it's like yeah they're going to be the stars of this game they're really going to bring a lot to the table especially offensively and for seals and conference play games but i don't think they found it yet especially with the return of Olani playing a factor there to where, you know, he's back 
And it's a great strength and benefits to this team. But now you got to start feeding him the ball more. Oh, and it takes shots away, obviously, from Roberts, Green, Jenkins, who are really the three primary uh, scorers for this squad uh, in non-conference play. And especially for Jenkins, who I think s- stepped up more often than not offensively for the squad. You know, you haven't really seen that yet so far. And I think this week we're going to see who, which one of those four, I think. Maybe Frankie Palacelli comes in as well. Maybe Tyler seems more, you know, one of those guys starts to step up for the squad and really becomes that primary. Yeah, I also think you, you got to wonder how they complement each other. You know, they've played separate. They've had their postponements, like Jake was saying, so they haven't had an opportunity to really get together and, and play together. Now, how do we get those two two guys um, to play together and to get that engine going? I think that is uh, the key for the men's team. Yeah, you bring up uh, – Ken, you bring up Jaleel Jenkins and, you know, watching him play this season, I think his, um, you know, greatest moments are – you know, he has a lot of success when he starts by getting to the basket and getting to the free throw line. And then working off of that, it opens up his shot from the three point line. And I think sometimes, um, you know, he just comes into the game trying to fire from, you know, three point line, sometimes even deep threes. And then if he misses a, you know, a couple to start off, he, you know, gets a little, a little shy for the rest of the game and it kind of gets, the team in a bad way, um, you know, at times. And with the return of uh, Olani, the, you know, Tyler Stevenson Moore's minutes have kind of gone down a little bit. And I thought he was be, you know, he was a big contributor for them in that kind of middle run of games, um, both on offense, but also on defense. You know, he's, he's a pretty lengthy, you know, guy and, and he can be uh, trouble on the defensive end. We saw him come up with that key block at the end of one of the games earlier in the season, um, you know, to seal a victory. I think that was over St. Peter's in December. So um, curious to see how um, coach works the minutes, uh, you know, after, after a rough loss in Vermont. Okay. I think that's really an excellent point, right? Like what's going to be the balancing act for them. And I do think, Stevenson Moore is a guy that you probably does deserve some some more playing time, but right, it's that balancing act you have to do as a coach. That's why they get paid, you know, is to figure that stuff out. Yeah, no doubt about it. So the segment of the show that everybody's been waiting for. Right now, there is eleven minutes and thirty seconds left in the fourth quarter in Kansas City. And in what could potentially be the final game of Ben Roethlisberger's career, he's not going out with a bang because what is it, forty-two to fourteen now, and he's driving, he's playing like it's the last game of his life, and it could very well be. But the rest of the, the playoffs, some great stories here. Where do you want to begin? Wow. Uh, maybe, well, maybe we'll just go in order, start in Cincinnati, breaking uh, the long-time playoff streak yes. of, you know, losing. Jet and Giant fans, if you think you've had it bad, <laughs> Cincinnati Bengal fans, that team had not won a playoff game since 1991. 
That is 31 years ago. And that franchise maybe not I mean not quite as much as the Detroit Lions, but we're getting there. An example of futility. I mean, the only decent football being played in the state of Ohio is being played in Columbus at Ohio State. And finally, Cincinnati breaks this glass ceiling and defeats the Raiders, who's another team that had some past glory and hasn't done anything lately, by a 26-19 score, a game that they pretty much established early on, and Vegas had been playing catch-up all, all along and just fell short. Yeah, uh, I, th- I honestly think in that game it started with a couple of uh... – mistakes uh the one i'll definitely point out was um i think after the Bengals had uh gone on the board was the the kickoff return um i forget which player it was by name but he tried to be uh you know make a cheeky move by um receiving the ball while out of bounds to try to get the raiders with good field position and accidentally grab the ball a little too soon and instead of starting you know in the middle of the field starting at their own like three yard line um, and I think that really kind of set the tone for the game early. And it was, it seemed like another instance of Derek Carr kind of having to play catch up um, for someone else's mistake. Guys. Yeah, I was, uh, I thought it was just one of those for Cincinnati as well too, for in particular for Joe Burrow, it's a, kind of like a survive and advance thing. I don't, you know, I, I would agree. I think it was kind of like, I don't think it was a bad game. I think it was a good game. I think it got close down to the wire there. Uh, I'm still wondering why uh, Derek Carr didn't throw the ball into the end zone on fourth down. Um, but, I, but I do think it was one, it's a good win for Cincy. Uh, I thought it was a good game, you know, like I said, to watch, not necessarily a great game play-wise. Um my question for that one is, did you hear the whistle blow? Oh, my God. It's a killer, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the question to take away. And I, it's funny because I thought I heard it in the game, and then they, they, the announcers brought it up afterwards. And I just don't know why the, the NFL and the officials and the crew just doesn't say, we missed it. Well, yeah, because, because well, I know, I know they can't, but we, but we all know that they missed it. We have all the replay involved, in it. and then they make up a story about how uh, they slow down the thing so the whistle wasn't as, you know, as early as it was in in live action. So, I remember Jake, many many years ago. We're talking about the 2000 World Series, and many years ago, when Roger Clemens and Mike Piazza had the bat throwing incident. And, Clemens was throwing a piazza constantly, and Joe Torre had to talk about talk after, and basically struggle to defend Clemens because he knew what Clemens did was indefensible. But he said, "Well, right. pitchers yes. need to pitch inside." Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Party line, we get it. Okay, same situation when it comes to the officiating in any league. They may sometimes they do admit to it. Sometimes we screwed up. But the problem is, with so much riding on the outcome of every game, whether it's incentives, and we're just talking about among players within the league, the standings, 
revenue, you name it, okay? With so much riding on every game, I haven't even started with the gambling. And the league's going to finally acknowledge the fact that people do bet on these games. So (laughs) with all that riding on it, you can't just say, oh, we screwed up. Because if somebody admits to that, remember the guy who scored an own goal for Columbia? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it would not be pretty. Well, but, all I'll say about the, you know, that whistle play is just, you know, anybody, I mean, you know, whether you played or even if you just watch sports for a while, you know, when, you know, when the whistle blows, you, just, you know, the play is over. So in terms of the Raiders defense, you know, if they do hear a whistle, they're probably – you know, they're probably stopping in their tracks, which it looks like the one corner did to leave the receiver open. I think it was Boyd. And but the but the problem is, too, if, you know, if they say, OK, yeah, we blew the whistle accidentally because he, he didn't step out of bounds when, uh, you know, when he was releasing the ball, it was, you know, a good play. It's just that if they had blown the whistle, then you're taking it away from the Bengals on the other side. So, you know, it, it's a lose lose. You just you hate that it happens, but it seems like it happens. There's always one huge mistake made by the officials in the playoffs every year, if not more. I'm begging these officials, man. They got to figure out how to play the Madden video game. They got to figure out how to, you know, study down these. It really shouldn't be that hard to officiate a game to where, you know, you may, some of the most simplest errors during playoffs. And the one that sticks out of my mind is the Saints-Rams one a couple of years ago where there was mm-hmm. clear pass interference. I think it was helmet-to-helmet uh, helmet as well, and neither of those flags got thrown. And the Rams ended up winning that game and going to the Super Bowl. You know, like it should have been the Saints game. And that was and that player you're talking about there, too, from yesterday, you know, it was going to be a touchdown 99%, you know, either way. Even if the whistle doesn't blow, it was pretty much in the receiver's hands. A great throw by Burrow. He had a lot of them. He was averaging seven uh, yards per attempt. Great pass pass rating at 110. So, you know, that's really not the issue there. But it, it it's just infuriating because it just feels like it gets worse and worse. And especially when games are on the line, it just feels like, you know, you really can't talk about games without having to talk about the refereeing and the call they missed or, you know, just a weird, something weird going on, like in the Cowboys game today. Where that was not necessarily on the refereeing, but it was just a weird incident. Well, I think that yeah. the college game, the college football game, I think has it right, where they review every turnover and every scoring play. Um, I think that that should be because in that regard, in that in the, in the Cincy game, if well, they're going to review, yeah, but if, but then they said they can't review a whistle. Well, you know, so I mean. The question was brought up by a CBS commentator, I forget, either in the studio or at the game, was whether or not the league office got the footage with audio. Now, you would expect, and, and that if you also, if you're running it back and forth, you're not necessarily paying attention to the audio, which it basically exposes something else. This is one of those things that we never planned for this, but we have to put something in the rules or at least in the procedure next time must I mean, be, in, must in the be rules, listening to the audio. I was, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, because in the rules, blowing the play is dead. So 
because at least from what we saw, you know, the whistle was blown before it was in the receiver's hands. So clearly that touchdown shouldn't have counted. And it was it was a game changer. Not that I don't think the Raiders could have won in the end, but, you know, it gave them another hill time and just add on to, as you said, Derek Carr and the offense, their job, because especially going up against Cincinnati defense, you know, Carr wasn't immune from mistakes. You know, he turned the ball early in the game well, following a strict sack. You know, he had struggle pushing the ball down the field. But, you know, it's kind of just things like that that are out of your control that really, I thought, played a big factor in Saturday's game. Well, in a seven-point game, you don't get the touchdown there. They're going to kick the field goal. They're only up by three. So when the Raiders are driving at the end of the game, they don't have to get a touchdown. They just need to get a field goal to put the game into overtime. So I think that's the, the big play. It's, it's really like a four-point swing there. Right, and that that changes the the dynamic of the game. Well, yeah, and not and not only that, but to those who care in the betting world, <laughs> the the seven point lead instead of you know four, uh, yeah, f- uh, well, no, it would be three at that point. Um, you know, I think the line for most of the week was around five to six points. So you got a lot of people, I'm sure, unhappy with that. Did you but take the over on that? Did you take the under? Um, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't play over under, one. but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, with the, with the, with any call the officials make nowadays, I just, I don't understand why the, it, it seems like they're so quick to, you know, blow a play dead when it could be so close like that. I feel like in, you know, times of review, you might as well let them play it out and then, you know, you can always review it after, um, something yeah. like stepping out of bounds or something. But when you when you blow it early like that, then, you know, you, you run into these incidents. And and then in terms of just, you know, the game itself, aside from the referees, I, w- am I the only one who was just waiting for, you know, the Raiders to commit to, you know, either doubling chase or making oh, them <laughs> making them go somewhere else? It just felt like yeah. it was pitch and catch yeah. all day. And yeah. I mean, if I'm if I'm a Raiders fan, you know, I'm pulling my hair out because at least make, you know, make Higgins, make Boyd. I know Uzama had uh, or Uzama had a few big plays here and there, but, he did. you know, make make them do it, you know, every play and not chase. I mean, I know he's going to get his here and there, but yeah, Jamar Chase finished that game nine receptions, 116 yards, including three 15 plus yard passes from Burrow. Yeah, just crazy. Just I and I'm sure um I'm not sure who they'll be matched up with uh next week. Um I guess it would be Tennessee. Um but I I I feel like who you know whoever they're playing is gonna set up a defensive game plan to um you know take him out of the game because I think I think it'll throw Burrow off his rhythm a little too having to rely on somebody else um you know if they're successful in that type of game plan. Okay, so we proceed to the New England Patriots and the Buffalo Bills <laughs> and first of all if you are a bookie if you are DraftKings, if you are any of these other betting agencies, you cleaned up because a lot of money was riding in the New England Patriots because of the New England Patriots. 
and the Buffalo Bills are the Buffalo Bills. But the Buffalo Bills have won two division titles in a row, and the New England Patriots have not been the same since Tom Brady left. We know all those wonderful things. Patriots made a good show of it during the regular season. Did not do so yesterday. 47-17. to 17. And this was a type of thing, if you're a Bills fan, and we have a friend who works in the athletic communications office who's from there. And went to the and, game, too, on a hunch. <laughs> yeah, on a hunch, a hell of a hunch. Oh, yeah. Because that was 30 years almost since yep. the Boy I Love Losing Super Bowls era of futility. <laughs> Again, kind of like the Bengals, but the team that has been in your way for years on end, and you just get the opportunity not just to beat them, but to destroy them. Oh, yes. And the Bills fans ate it up. That man was an exorcism of demons, I thought, right there, just on the Bills front and just all their struggles in the past, especially against New England team. And I just felt like for the rest of the league, just on how much New England has hurt them, just finally, you know, giving them a taste of their own medicine in that sense. And you want to talk about betting, you know, the line entering the game, the spread, I'm sorry, yeah, the spread was minus four, and the over-under was at 43 and a half points. The Bills alone did enough to cover the over-under, finishing with seven points on what was a tremendous statement game from them, statement game from Josh Allen especially, 21 of 25, 308 yards and three touchdowns. Cool. <laughs> I, and I also thought it was his his legs as well, too. I don't know what yeah. he rushed for, but, you know, it seemed like when they needed a big play, he was able to run, and he just looked like a uh, a man-child out on the <laughs> field there. You know, it was almost like he was like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a varsity kid playing in the JV game. Yeah. You know, when he was he was playing, it really was. Like, it was really fun to to watch him to watch him go. He is 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 a dynamic dynamic player he was yeah the the scariest part to me was just him his targets okay from 10 to 19 yards out he went six for six for 98 yards three of his touchdowns 20 yard passes four for four 141 yards and a touchdown so you're looking at uh, just about 250 yards almost just on 10 to 20 plus yard passes alone ridiculous numbers (laughs) Well, I think the biggest, well, the most surprising thing is, you know, you see the regular season matchups between these two and you figure it's going to be another freezing cold game up in Buffalo, maybe a little unsure heading into the game if snow is going to be a factor. But you, I, I think everybody just kind of assumed you're going to get pretty hard-nosed defense from both sides, you know, contributing to a low-scoring game and – I mean, the Patriots' defense was nowhere to be found. And then, you know, you, you get into a track meet with Buffalo with a rookie quarterback in his first playoff game. You know, I think everybody, once they saw the Bills kind of get going early, they knew it was going to be trouble from there on. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the cold definitely came. No question about that. They said it was minus six factoring the wind chill. The problem was that I think the big difference was look at game one and look at this game. You know, wind was a big factor in the first game these two teams played against. That's why the Patriots ran 99% of the time. 
Here, there was really no wind to contend about. It was just cold and no snow from what I can remember. So, yeah, it was, but, you know, the offense was able to lit it up. And there was just a tremendous difference maker in that was Allen using his legs, the receivers really stepping up and just cooking England. Yeah, and I think, well, go on, go on. I, I just thought Mac Jones had no compliments. On the on the offensive end, I mean, he's yeah. still a young quarterback. I don't know where he's going to go as a player. Yeah, uh, I don't love him. I, I don't hate him, but they just didn't have any threats. They don't have anybody that 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 you know seems like they're running downhill that tilts the field. Yeah, uh, they there was nothing for the Bills to be concerned about. Yeah, run really. game wasn't there. T- wasn't there yesterday? Harris Stevenson. There were big factors in the win. Didn't really do anything. Uh, Harris finished with thirty yards. And uh, really outside of Kendrick Bourne, you know, can't really recall anyone else stepping up. Jacoby Myers as well, I guess. He finished with 40 yards. But really, Kendrick Bourne was the one receiver, I thought, you know, that was still, that was there for Mac Jones. It was really, there was nothing for him available. And it's not like he was able to do much himself anyway, you know, with how he was playing, especially that first quarter. Well, you, you talk about the, you know, the lack of the run game from New England, but I think, um, You know, a big thing for, I don't want to say a turnaround for this Buffalo team, because I think everybody knew they were going to be good, um, you know, this season. But at times early on, they, you know, they had some troubles, some some stumbles and whatnot. But it seems like Devin Singletary has been able to Mm -hmm. kind of really get an established run game outside of Josh Allen for this Bills team. And that, I think, you know, if I was someone who had to, you know, compete against the Bills is, is scary because, you're always worried about, you know, Allen to uh, Diggs, Allen to Knox, you know, a handful of the other guys. And then you got to worry about Allen's legs. But now if you got to worry about, you know, Devin Singletary putting up, you know, about 80 yards at times, you know, he had, yeah. he had 80, 83. Yeah. He had over 80 uh, in the playoff game. I know it was the Jets, but over 80 that last game. And then Atlanta before that, he was over a hundred. So you know, he's, he's kind of been on a little bit of a run here and it, it makes everything much easier for that uh, Buffalo offense. And especially for Josh Allen, because now his threat of running is even, even greater. Yeah. So. Singletary too. He's really good again. First downs. We're getting the end zone. Cause it's just going back to his game. You know, those 16 carries, nine of them were either for first or for a touchdown. So he's just such a threat in that he's so explosive coming out the backfield. And by the time you catch up to him, you know, he's already gotten 70 yards on you, you know, just about. And he has 16 carries, put up 83 yards. Half of that, too, coming after contact. So he he's definitely added a dimension to this Bills offense, which is already so explosive. You know, Dawson Knox, tight end, stepping up. Svon Diggs, the two of them played virtually, I think, every snap in yesterday's game. Yeah. And one thing, one more thing I'll add to just quick, you, you bring up Dawson Knox. I think it's, uh, I think it's time we put some respect on his name. I think he's one of the top tight ends in this league. I don't know how you guys feel about him, but it seems like he's been, I mean, I know Stefan Diggs is up there in Buffalo putting up big numbers and, you know, getting to all pro teams and whatnot, but um, Dawson Knox really seems like a, another safety blanket, if you will, for Josh Allen. And it always seems like in big games, he has a touchdown or two as he did uh, just last night. Yeah. You know, statistically, it doesn't really jump out that much, you know, in the regular season, he had 71 targets, 587 
receiving yards, which are both good for top 20, so it's not for nothing, right? But I think his greatest strength is, I think, as you said, being that safety blanket, especially in the red zone. He had nine receiving touchdowns, which was tied for first during the regular season amongst tight ends. So he's someone who's reliable in that front. And like I said, to me, he doesn't really have, I think, the skill. He's not on the same level as Mark Andrews, Kelsey, Gronk, but... You know, he's definitely, I think, around there, especially in the postseason as we move further and further into it. He's going to be a factor for defenses to have to shut him down along with Stephon Diggs. Greg? Greg. Are the Bills – and I, well, I think he's – he's in, um, as a tight end, he gets the advantage of that play action. You know, they're the ones that, that hit the most. They ran so well yesterday that I think he gets some of those things, and he does it really well. So he fits that role perfectly. The question, I think, is are the Bills uh, a real contender for the AFC this year? Well, I'll jump in, and I believe if the result holds in Kansas City, it will. They, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah I, think, I think it might be 42 42-21 right now. Kansas uh, City way. Buffalo should be going to Kansas City uh, for that next game. And I think – I mean, I've heard, you know, a lot all off uh, during the regular season and even coming into the season that, you know, Buffalo has kind of built their team to beat the Chiefs and we saw them do it in the regular season. So I think it's a matchup that they like and um, it's it's really going to be interesting to see the rematch because, you know, we you know, we're watching Kansas City right now put up a bunch of points. We just saw Buffalo last night put up a bunch of points. So it's going to be, I think, um, you know, w- which defense can get more stops maybe. Yeah. And I think even though Kansas City's defense has looked really good at times uh, throughout this season, I think Buffalo's defense is uh, – is kind of riding a little bit of a hot streak here. I think holding New England to, you know, that low rushing, um, uh, you know, they've, they've been pretty great on the ground this season and holding them to, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but I think it was around like 50, 60 yards on the ground. Um, you know, that's, that's a pretty dominant performance, um, you know, from that defense. And I, I think, I think if you're Buffalo, you like the matchup. I think Tennessee, as surprising as it may sound, um, it might have been a, a tougher matchup for a team like Buffalo. No, I get that. For for Buffalo, too, it, it helps. They're not going to be facing Tennessee, especially with a looming Derrick Henry likely coming back next week, which just changes the game completely. Because Tennessee's looked real good without him, and they looked really good with him. So him coming back definitely adds another layer that Cincinnati is likely going to have to strategize against, and it's going to be tough to stop because, you know, even a Derrick Henry who's probably won't be at 100%. But it was probably going to be 70 and among one of the most dangerous players in the league. I mean, it took so long just for another running back, and it was Jonathan Taylor, to catch up to him in the rushing yard total. He'd been gone six or seven weeks. So, yeah, Tennessee definitely watching, you know, this weekend closely. And, you know, these games, too, just to see, you know, what the other squads are doing. Be good on both it, ends. It, it's going to definitely be a fun one next week, Greg. It, it'll be interesting to see if the Bills can put the long drives together like they were last night, where they put some drives together, they, you know, seven, eight plays down the field, 60, 70 yards. If they can do that and keep Kansas City's uh, offense off the field, 
Yeah. Uh, and keep it like a, a like a, a fast game in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? With the clock is, you know, you 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 know you run the rock and you spin that clock and you can keep Mahomes off the field because what I think Kansas City does and what their what their defense gets a little probably too much credit for is is they start scoring early like they are right now and then you got to play catch up and then it's really easy to play defense that way. You know, because not many teams can keep pace with them. So if you can grind on Kansas City uh, and force them to play long stretches of defense, keep that offense off the field, I think it really could be an interesting matchup next week. I think it, it, it's got the makings of a good game, I think, at least. So I'm, I'm with you two guys on this one. I think it's going to be a real good game. And just quickly, looking back at last year, too, in the conference uh, championships, just going on this from earlier, uh, from earlier this year, it was a 38-20 win in the Bills' favor. And these are two different teams, obviously, especially the Chiefs, because they strolled early starting the season. But that was a big factor in Buffalo's success, you know, keeping Kansas City off the field. And they managed to score every quarter as well. Allen threw for 315 yards, uh, three touchdowns, and defense was able to get some big stops on him, which was a difference maker from the conference title game a couple years ago where, or last year, where it was the inverse and Kansas City, you know, was on the field a lot. They were moving the ball well, driving down. And Buffalo couldn't really get the offense going for a lot of that game. You know, Josh Allen threw 48 passes in that championship game, and he finished with uh, an interception, a couple touchdowns, and only 287 yards. Yeah, but I, I don't know if that's the recipe for them to be successful, right? Him throwing that many times. Yeah. You know, maybe him running that many times, but not, not passing. <laughs> do, do we want to talk about the Eagles-Bucks game? Oh, do we ever? Absolutely. Because... <laughs> All right, now get in there. Well, first off, don't believe the 31 to 15 score because the Eagles scored all their points in the fourth quarter. This was like Tampa Bay's game from start to finish. And Tom Brady, any rumors of Tom Brady being on the decline? Well, first of all, he always steps up for the playoffs, did it again. 29 for 37, 271 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. But this was a game where the Eagles, you know, had no business being there. I mean, I couldn't believe how dominant a performance it was by the Buccaneers on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I would agree with that. I it made this is how far the distance was between those two teams in my mind. I was watching that game thinking to myself, uh, is Jalen Hurts really going to be the Eagles franchise quarterback? You know, it makes you question that that's just how dominant and how long can is Tom Brady going to play longer than Jalen Hurts? <laughs> you know, and, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, at this point, Brady's a cyborg, man. But no, it's a great point because Hurts, especially the second half, expectations that we set on him. But this game, I think, raises a lot of those questions about how far he has to go, how good can he be, uh, especially as a passer when he has facing better opposition. But he he had a lot of turnover-worthy plays and did end up turning the ball over a couple times as well, I believe. And... Another issue, too, was the ground game, which really got the Eagles to the playoffs. Just wasn't hap- hap- wasn't there. They were shut down pretty well. Hertz was the leading scorer at 39 yards. But really outside of Boston Scott, who had one carry for 34 yards, 
nothing going on on the Eagles ground game. And to me, that's the difference maker because that was their strongest asset. It was, you know, not having to have Hertz be the engine of the offense by himself and having him rely on, on the ground game. Jake. Well, I think it's so interesting that you talk about, you know, the Eagles run game because obviously that's the matchup everybody's looking at. Tampa has a really good rush defense. Eagles are, you know, a really good team running the football, but they kind of, um, it sounds like, you know, they, they kind of hurried Sanders back from injury for this game, which, you know, obviously a lot of teams do when it's some of their top players for the playoffs. But just interesting to me, I know, you know, they kind of got down pretty early at 14 nothing in the first quarter. But when you're that kind of team, you can't just, you know, abandon what you do. And I thought it was interesting that guys like Boston Scott and Kenneth Gainwell only got one carry in this game and Scott took it to the house on his one carry. You know, these are, these have been key contributors throughout the season for this run game because, you know, Sanders has missed a handful of games. Um, You know, why not give it to the guys who have been, you know, helping you get into the playoffs these last few weeks of the regular season. You know, I know, I know Hertz is going to get his, but you know, you kind of force, all the other carries to Sanders just coming off uh, injury. Um, and then you see, you see Scott get his chance. He takes it to the house. You, you, you might be thinking again, late in the game, but you're thinking maybe we should have given him some carries earlier. It, it agreed. You know, it, the loss falls on hurts on the offense, but I'll definitely surrounding his coaching staff as well, because to me, he really abandoned what got them to the game in the second half of the season and reverted back to what this, what this Eagle squad tried doing in the first half where they found virtually no success, you know, it was again going up against pretty good passing defense, you know, with an offensive line to where, you know, they've improved. It's a lot of young guys in their second and third year. They were fine as pass rushers, but they're just constantly over- overwhelmed at the end of the day. And there's really no space or room for Hertz or the running backs to do anything. And it was, again, it was a big problem too, especially on the other end where you have Brady, he could have all the time in the world, but he's getting rid of that ball pretty fast, and he's finding a way to get it downfield uh, virtually every play and just giving it to his slew of receivers like Mike Evans, Gronk, Tyler Johnson, you know. Yeah, and I'll I'll jump in one more time here for this game and say, uh, you know, give credit to Tampa because, you know, they're coming in with, you know, not their top guys on the depth chart in terms of running backs and everywhere. You know, yeah. Keyshawn Vaughn and Giovanni Bernard both come in with a rushing touchdown uh, on the day. You know, they do get over 100 rushing yards. We all know the story on Tom Brady, but, you know, it, it's crazy because, you know, either credit Tampa, maybe, you know, bad, uh, bad job by the Eagles defense. But it's, you know, Mike Evans, nine receptions, 117 yards and a touchdown Gronk with a touchdown. It's like, you know, these are, you think those are the guys you're focusing on to limit, especially when you get into the red zone. And these are the guys that are hurting you. And I think you got to give, you know, not that he doesn't get credit enough, but Mike Evans, you know, going up against uh, Darius Slay, um, you know, he just, he just balled out on him. Today. Oh yeah, nine catches, <laughs> ten targets, 117 yep. yards. Only receiver that had over 50 yards for Tampa, and a touchdown on top of that. Matt, I'm looking at the highlights right now. I'm watching. Yeah, Mike it was score a touchdown. Yeah. But but I, I do want to talk about that too. Before we switch, is how many more and this Bucks team offense primarily take? Hey, they have no Leonard Fournette. They have no Ronald Jones. They have obviously no Antonio Brown for a season. 
Uh, Chris Godwin, I don't recall his status, but I think he's he was out in today's game. Uh, and now offensive, offensively, they had an offensive line, one of the very few teams where they had virtually no offensive line issues during the season. They, Christian Wurst got rolled up early. He left the game. Ankle, uh, was it Ryan Kerrigan? No, he's on the other side. Uh, Josh Well took over. He had his issues as well. A couple other uh, linemen were hurt. They were down. You know, it definitely be an issue there. And just how many blows can this offense take? And I know how good Brady is. He's able to adapt and adjust, especially for receivers or running backs. He controls a lot of that, you know, in terms of that's who he's giving the ball to. His protectors, it's a lot harder to control that. And we saw that in the Super Bowl on the Chiefs side, where they were starting virtually second stringers on every offensive line. And it gave Mahomes no time to do anything. And that ended up being a huge difference maker. And if you're going up against uh, Aaron Donald on the other side of you, or a San Francisco uh, 49ers defensive line, you know, having Bosa there, you know, it's not going to be good times for the Bucks' offensive line to have second stringers there. Well, well, I think they got one team too many for Philly. I agree with Matt's original point. And Philly was just a pretender in this playoff situation. You know, they came in, and I think t- this week that doesn't matter. You know, Kenneth, like all the, the, the things that you bring up, does it matter next week? I don't know if they're playing Arizona or the Rams. I think it has to, especially if you're playing uh, Arizona. Really, if you're facing L.A. or San Fran, you know, it's it's definitely going to matter a lot. Well, so let's face so it. It doesn't matter this week, right? So we'll see next yeah. week. I, I think that's – but I think Eagles, it's a real good point. As I said before, it's kind of like a one facing a 16 in the NCAA. The Eagles got in. They're a mid, they, they were like a mid-major compared to Tampa Bay. And – you could also make the argument that, that was the case in the uh, NFC East all season because, let's see, who's next on the list here uh, for uh, getting clobbered because a lot of these games were one-sided. Oh, yes, the NFC East champion, the Dallas Cowboys, who made it interesting, to their credit, but were a little bit deceptive because this was until – the final drive of the game, and we'll talk. To, we'll definitely get into that. All San Francisco. Yeah, it definitely was. I I watched uh, pretty much this whole thing, and um, it's crazy. I, I wasn't surprised at all because I knew what San Fran wanted to do. I felt like they wanted to punch them in the mouth and run the ball on them, and that's. I felt like exactly what they did. And it got a little dicey at times. It felt like, as always, when it comes to Niners games, it seems Garoppolo might, you know, throw the game away. Almost did. Um, (laughs) Big interception at the end. But between Mitchell and Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk had a good game. Um, It, you know, they just, they really do. They, this Niners team punches you in the mouth. They're going to run the ball. You know, they're going to run the ball. And I, it feels like, you know, 75% of the time, you're not going to do anything about it. And it, the Cowboys just weren't ready for it. <laughs> yeah. Though the ground game was a huge winner for San Fran. Debo Samuel is a huge part of that offense. He, a lot of times felt like he was the offense, even though he carried it 10 times, he still ran for 72 yards, including a touchdown. And the Cowboys had no answer for his versatility as a rusher and as a receiver. So he carried it uh, 27 times, but he still managed to get just under 100 yards 
on the afternoon. So that dynamic duo was a huge strength in 49ers offense, where outside of them, no one really did too much. and really didn't have to do too much against the Cowboys team that I thought really kept shooting themselves in the foot on both ends of the ball. What yeah, I'm looking like for is time of possession very, here, but go ahead. It, it felt like it wasn't until the very end of the game when San Francisco decided that they wanted to give the game away. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, that Dallas really got anything going. I mean, the, the, the interception, the Garoppolo throws, um, I mean, and then they let, um, I mean, they punt the ball, they go off sides when they're going to go for it on fourth and one. So it forces them to punt the ball. Oh no, did they get it there? I could have that wrong, but anyway, they have to punt the ball. Um, and they virtually give them, you know, 60 straight yards. Yeah. You know, just four straight passes in a row. They go right downfield. And then Dak Prescott, you know, runs with 14 seconds left, gets the ball to the 20. And will they it, don't have enough time to run another play. But Will it kill these guys? Will it kill these coaches, these quarterbacks, to just play a game of Madden once in their life just to figure out how to run a two-minute offense? I mean, not only that, what killed them, first of all, the first – yeah, we all saw this. The first thing they do is blame the ref for trying to squeeze in and, uh, and spot the ball too late. If there – were there are two ifs. Number one, the play beforehand was not a great call. Go for the end zone. Number two, when you – when the play is over, hand the ball to somebody with a striped shirt. Because the play can't start until the ball is spotted. They tried to spot it themselves and run the play. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, it it was it was a nightmare ending. And uh, you brought up a good point about the Niners. They get that uh, false start penalty. They they move Trent Williams, uh, you know, in motion before the start of the play, and then they get that false start. They're for, forced to punt it. And the Cowboys go all the way down the field. And and I think the worst part is I think anybody could tell based off of, you know, Dak, uh, you know, pre-snap at the line that, you know, it's a, it's a total design run. He's telling the lineman, I'm going to sneak as much as I can get up to the line so we could spike it and have a better shot at the end zone. And they and they couldn't even operate it right. They couldn't <laughs> even they couldn't even they knew what they were doing. It wasn't like yeah. Dak just did it on his own. You could tell it was designed and. Yeah, and they still, you know, classic Cowboys, it seems like. They yeah, forgot something. I, it, something nobody spotted yeah. the ball. Yeah, and that wasn't a penalty, but I thought it was an indictment on how the Cowboys played today. And it was honestly a miracle they even made it a competitive contest there in that second half. You know, because they were they did a lot of self-mutilation, for lack of a better term. Just hurting themselves offensively defensively giving San Francisco second third chances which they converted into points on the other end taking away there's a 30 yard uh, catch CD Lamb had that got taken away because of a hold I believe yeah so it's just a lot of 14 penalties and this is a Cowboys team where they led I think they were they either led the league or they were second in uh penalties called per game this year and just the undisciplinedness is really what hurt this team because they got skilled good they are on both ends of the ball, obviously. And, you know, of the two quarterbacks, up until the last play, I'd, I'd argue Dak, well, Dak, I don't, I don't know, both quarterbacks kind of struggled today. But, <laughs> you know, 
I thought Prescott looked better more often than not because it wasn't he wasn't just handing the ball off uh, to Zeke to Zeke and Pollard. You know, he had his receivers and uh, Schultz. You know, doing things. Schultz had a good game. I thought eighty nine yards, seven catches. But you know, it's just this team could not get out of their own way, and it cost them a spot in the playoffs. So I have two questions. Um, what well, one of them being? Um, do you guys think that Zeke should be getting more um, action on the ground? And then two, does Mike McCarthy have a job tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is Jerry in charge, so it's tough to determine that one. I'm gonna, but if I were in charge, I wouldn't want anyone that touched the field today on the field again tomorrow. And I know how ridiculous that sounds, but I was just in awe of how that final. That I, I just isn't I couldn't believe something like that would happen in a professional game. I was like, this is high school or college ball. This is a professional game. What went down happened. You know, it was just re- Yeah, you know, Zeke, he didn't have a great game today, but this season I thought was a great rebound from his last couple seasons where he really struggled. Injury played a, a big factor in that as well. I, I definitely think he's someone going forward they could definitely turn to more and you know, started you continue to utilize him. Well, he was already a top ten carrier in the league, and top ten as well in rushing touchdowns with ten this season. But yeah, he's someone where it surprises me he only had a thousand yards because he's definitely someone I could see be a fifteen hundred yard rusher. Greg, yeah, I, I would agree. I think he, he needs to get more touches. I, I would like to see them run the ball uh, a little more effectively than they are, especially when you tout how good their offensive line is, right? And how good uh, Zeke I, and Pollard are as well. Yeah, so I, I think that they, they really should give him the mall more. Uh, I think it's a really good question whether uh, Mike McCarthy has a job next year or not, right? Um, I I didn't think How he was going to survive last year. How much of this is his fault? Here's what I think is his fault. And the, the I'm, I'm going to – not to play calling it – not to play – the penalties is his fault. Yeah, I, th- I think you, that's yes. a culture. I think that's a culture thing. You lost the game because you got so many penalties, and, and it's I not think that game was them. winnable without them. And yes. it's not anything new because they were among the top teams in penalties drawn, and they just didn't work on it throughout the year, well, in spite of all the success they found. A fan of the team, or you work for the team, you are wondering what else can possibly go wrong. I mean. How many times in recent years have the Cowboys gone into the playoffs looking pretty good and, you know, people predicting that they'll go deep and something stupid happens? A blown snap, a misplayed final play on the drive, whatever it is, or multiple penalties, whatever it is, it always seemed that the Cowboys shot themselves in the foot somehow. And here we go again, another year, and it, now the Cowboy fans get to feel what it was like to be a Red Sox fan before 2004, something going wrong all the time. Now, of course, you have to appreciate the fact that they have a chance of winning it every year, but you the futility has to be frustrating. How many of you guys have seen Ted Lasso? Uh, yeah, I've seen some of it, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great There's one show. scene where 
uh, Coach Blonde is trying to explain to him the different teams in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So they get to Liverpool. And Liverpool, once great team, hasn't won in a long time. Oh, Dallas Cowboys. And their fans are really frustrated over it. Dallas Cowboys. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> yep that's yeah. right. That says it all. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was on the chopping block. I just don't know who, who you replace him with. Um, well, yeah, my my issue with that is is likely it would go to probably the offensive coordinator who has had coaching experience and Dan Quinn. But you want to talk about guys who are infamous for fumbling away games? Dan Quinn was the guy where they had a twenty to three lead over New England with quarter and a half to go, and they couldn't even secure that. So replacing one with the other is almost a lateral move in that sense, you know, where, you know, nothing is safe. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. I'll show the futility of the NFC East as a whole. The first conference out, uh, I'm correct. Just out of the playoffs as a whole. And, you know, you had a Giants team with a lot of expectations. He, especially towards the end of the season, he was a joke of a coach. Yeah, Washington, they had high expectations, a lot of injuries, they miss out. And the Eagles, who we, we said, they look good in the second half, though. And the Cowboys, who had, you know, they had a lot of folks riding on them to go pretty far in the playoffs. And so far, they've been upset by a six-seed uh, 49ers squad, who wasn't even at 100% for Fred Warner going down at the end of the game. Well, you talk about uh, potential, you know, uh, head coaching hires for the Cowboys if they do move on from McCarthy. Uh, the offensive coordinator, Kellen Moore, even though you know he is a younger guy, I know he has been getting um, a lot of talk about you know some of the other open head coaching jobs. I'm sure he would love to uh, you know take the spot in Dallas and like you said, bringing up uh, Quinn's uh, last stop in Atlanta as a head coach. I don't know if uh, Jerry Jones wants to take a chance of uh, something like that, even though he has done a very good job turning around this defense. But the thing I keep, you know, having trouble with is when it comes to this Cowboys team, it's like we always hear the offensive line is one of the best in football. You look at the wide receivers on the team. They're incredible. We talk about the running backs. Seems like between Elliott and Pollard, it's a good duo. Dak, he might not be, you know, the top of the top, but I think he's definitely, um, you know, a good quarterback. And then the defense, it just seems like was all you could talk about this season. Um, so it's like, what, where do you even, you know, don't get me wrong. Right. Don't get me wrong. There's spots where every team can improve, but it's like, yeah, they're supposed to be this amazing team. What, you know, what's the problem? So is it, is it the head coach in fact, or it it. seems but it seems like it seems like it's been happening now for you know Decades. even even going back to <laughs> even going back to those Romo teams. Well, that's the thing. the the ter- The personalities and names have turned over. By the way, it's Coach Beard, not Coach Blonde. I know. You know, I every I'll go get some shortbread cookies for everybody. But anyway, <laughs> the big question that we have here is that. We know the personnel is good, and we know that this team, as presently constituted, hasn't played together that long. And this is a any general manager or an owner slash general manager comes to this impasse. I mean, again, wind back the clock forty years, 
and to a different sport. Bill Torrey and the New York Islanders. The Islanders were in a similar situation where they run up a terrific regular season record and get bounced in the second round of the playoffs. And Bill Torrey is sitting at his desk one day after getting knocked out by the Rangers, of all people, who advanced to the finals. This is in 79. End up losing to Montreal. But he's at an impasse. Do I stick with this team as presently constituted one more year, or do I blow it up? He made the conscious decision to stick with them one more year, and it resulted in four straight Stanley Cups. So this is an impasse. When it, even when a, a, a guy like Brian Cashman, this has happened to him a lot, where he hasn't made changes, made changes or maybe too late, and hurt the Yankees, or made changes too soon. So year too early, year too late, and. Let's face it, Jerry Jones has been known for his impatience. I think maybe he should just not listen to the critics this time and maybe stick with them one more year because the Giants aren't getting any better. The Eagles, we showed what they can do, nothing. The Washington football team, let them find a name first. They're going to win the division next year. Give it another shot. Give this team another chance to gel. But you have to address the immediate problems. Too many penalties. Too many young, youthful mistakes. As this team matures, makes fewer mistakes, you hope. But I don't think it's time to blow it up just yet. Well, the one thing I'll say, uh, you know, coming off of that is just, I wonder, you know, you got – you know, guys like Lyle Collins on the offensive line, uh, Tyron Smith. It, these guys are starting to get older. It seems like they're always injured throughout the season. You know, it's like... Well, then you make decisions on their replacements, no doubt about that. Well, but you do this, that. But yeah. also, too, this is this is a division where it's, you know, it seems like no matter what, it's always a different winner of the division the next year. No team can win it two years in a row. And even though it looks like it should be obvious with, with the way the other teams are kind of set up in that division, it just kind of feels like for some reason that the Cowboys like might not win the division next year. Well, they seem to but, eke it out. But we, we we think we've established, after watching a full season of this again, that the Cowboys are the best team in their division. So I'm going to agree with that. I, I think that it probably is is the the right move is to keep them. Uh, I do think on paper they're they're the most talented team in the division, so you really feel like they could win it. Uh, and you 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 see what they can do. Can they can they correct those mistakes? And I also think there's penalties in their penalties. Uh, you know, you're going to go offside. You're going to have some you know some encroachments and things like that. But at the wrong time, those are the ones you have to eliminate as well, too, right? The ones that, that just blow up the game on you. Um, you have to eliminate those. Uh, I think that it's, it's where else you're going to go. I don't know if there's a coach out there that you're, uh, you know, that you're, you're pining for right now. That a lot you're, of openings you're just like, out I, there. You know, 
yeah, there's too many openings, I think, probably. And almost um, half the league is at this point. Yeah, it's, I think it's a quarter of the teams are, are yeah, right now a quarter are looking for coaches or have an interim head coach. So, um, if oh, you no. want to go into he- the head coaching things, uh, were we surprised at Joe Judge getting fired? No, thank goodness. No, no. <laughs> uh, I don't think we're friends on social media yet, Greg, but I did put a couple of comments up there. Comment number one was Ray Hanley's record as Giants coach, the two years he was there, was 14 and 18. And judges was ten and twenty three. Now, okay. to be fair, Hanley had a much better team, had just won a Super Bowl, and the fact that it underachieved was one of the reasons why fans soured on him so quickly. But Ray Hanley, until now, was a poster child for, or the definition, dictionary definition, I should say, of bad Giants coach. And then you look at this disaster. Now, again, not entirely of Judge's creation, but if you're going to hire a new general manager, you want the general manager to pick a coach. Now, way, way back when, after, uh, I think it was when Jim Fossil got hired and Reeves got fired, Wellington Mara was was, uh, talking to a couple of reporters and explained how the procedure went with the Giants for hiring coach. They said the general manager recommends the hire and the owners do the hiring, whatever. Whatever kind of protocol they want to use is fine, but they need a GM first. And then the GM has to hire a coach that fits with the GM's philosophy. But the big question we have right now is you guys still got to start with the GM and there are no obvious choices out there that I know of. What do you think? Uh, for the GM, I have no idea. That's not like a wheelhouse that I like feel comfortable with. I th- right. think that the guy, that I think the guy from the Dolphins is is the coach that they should be targeting right now. Like a, you know, a, a, I, that or one and yeah, I I just the, the turnaround that he did for that team. There, there's something that he had going with those guys that makes me feel like that's something that the Giants need. Yeah, you know, turn, yeah, the turnaround was good. The play was good, I thought, especially that second half. My only issue is if you're still trying to build this team under Daniel Jones, it, it seems like Flores isn't going to shy away from throwing him under the bus because <laughs> that happened mm-hmm. a whole lot. Uh, even while the Dolphins were on a roll with two old Tungo Vailoa, yeah. which honestly took me by surprise because it seemed like they were a great fit and the offense, they were able to adjust and adapt the offense to make it work. And, you know, for... A guy like Jones plays a bit similar. He's faster than Tua, sure, but he has to play similar offense. You know, the play style might be able to fit time when it goes south. You know, you want your coach to have your back and not throw you under the bus, which him and Zimmer seem to do a lot during the season. Yeah, you always wonder what the coach's um, motivation is when they do something like that. Are they trying to send a message to a player that, you, and you don't know what that message is when they do something like that? You know, and, and I think that would be the question. That was just my thought on it. I don't know. Who do you guys think for the Giants? Well, I think uh, when it comes to the GM search, 
I know the last time they were looking, Lewis Riddick was in the talks. I, it doesn't sound like his name has been talked about as much for the Giants this time around. But uh, it sounds like, um, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce the last name, but Joe uh, Schuen, I think, for uh, is the Bills' assistant GM. It sounds like he's been getting, um, uh, been talked a lot, at least, um, you know, in the news. Well, that's what uh, I like, too. Assistant GMs, people in the system, so to speak, are really the ones you want to look at because you don't want to retread somebody else. You want somebody who's in up and, who's an up and coming program and had a role in building it. The Bills are a perfect example. They've replaced yeah. the Patriots as the class of that division. And, yeah, and after all their yeah, use of utility I'd, too. I even add a different team also in the Kansas City Chiefs where you remember they were a team that was on the fence, struggled. They got Brett Veach in 2017. And all of a sudden you see these great picks and these great players. And now, you know, that team has stars like Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Frank Clark. And we saw what they did today, ending most likely ending Ben Rossberger's career. Uh, ending the Steelers season and going on to advance it was a pretty non-competitive contest after the second quarter, you know, just because of, you know, some great GM moves as well as obviously getting the right players and the right system in place. Well, the funny thing is we mentioned earlier that if Pittsburgh kept the pressure on the KC defense and kept them on the field, they, their chances would be good. That didn't happen. KC, again, another one-sided game. And you know what? I mentioned earlier that Roethlisberger was playing, especially the fourth quarter, like it was the last game of his life, and it may very well be. But it seemed like every drive the Steelers were on, despite how far behind they were, where they were trying to win the game, which I I like. And you just watch them. And you watch a guy who knows the clock is ticking, that this could be it. I may never do this again. And while, we, while we've been talking on the show, I've had it on here on the monitor, and it's been really, it was really interesting to watch because you start to think of, if I were in that position, my last hurrah, how would I be handling it? Probably the same. Yeah, and I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. It's clearly, you know, it hasn't been uh, the best year for Big Ben at all. Um, but it, it does seem like in a lot of these games, um, you know, win or lose or and lose close or lose big, it seems like on every drive they have, there's at least one ball that he throws perfectly that just goes right through the hands of one of his receivers. And of late, it's been Deontay Johnson. It, oh, it seemed yeah. like it happened one, once or twice early in this game when, you know, the defense was kind of keeping them in it. Um, and, you know, you, you can't blame that on Ben. I know he's getting older and he does make, you know, his own mistakes. But, you know, when he when he puts it right where it needs to be, you know, a guy like Johnson or Claypool or, you know, even Smith Schuster was back tonight. You got to make that catch. And, you know, a lot of times you got to get, you know, some of these first downs to, like you said, keep that Chiefs offense on, on the sideline and also give your defense a break. I mean, it seemed like TJ Watt was single-handedly uh, keeping them in that, in that game early on. 
then you're in, in you're at an impasse in your career. If Roethlisberger thinks he can still play, like Tom Brady, he has to be, know that. Well, yes, that he can't be an impediment to the team's progress. And like you said, I don't think he is. I think that there are other pieces that the Steelers need to put in place, and they barely made the playoffs this year. So does it get worse for them next year? And if it does get worse for them next year, and Roethlisberger's still in there, he's going to get blamed for all of it. But then there's the other thing with any veteran player, like Brady, for example. Most of the time, the player knows when it's time to quit. And you know what the two reasons are. Either can't do it physically or don't no longer want to do it mentally. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. And I know we got to get into uh, the NBA a little bit, but I will pose the question. Uh, who, who do you guys like for the, the Monday night playoff game? I, I'll tip, tip my cat to the, uh, to the Cardinals. I, I, I like the Cardinals. Yeah, I'll, you know I'll, what? That. I'll go. I'll go Rams just because, especially the past couple of weeks, and they're both pretty good teams. No question about it. Two great quarterbacks, Murray and Stafford. I love watching them play. But just you know, ranking wise, the Rams defense tremendous. It's tough for me to bet a guy, a team that has Aaron Donald defensively, offensively as well. Just seeing how dynamic the offense was. They had a tough loss against San Fran last week, obviously. But San Fran showed they're not pretenders. You know, they're here to be taken seriously. And the Rams, you know, maybe they learned something from that. Yeah, I, I like am going to go. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go Good. with the Rams myself. You know, I don't – it's funny. I, as a fan, I love the Monday night game. Uh, if I was coaching, I would hate this Monday night game because I think it's such a disadvantage after the game <laughs> is over. It's such a disadvantage for the loser, right, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of the game. So if the, whoever wins the Rams or the Cards, I think it, it's such a disadvantage for them. Uh, but I do, I, you know, even though they lost to San Francisco, I did like the way um, that they played uh, against San Francisco. I just like their offensive attack. You know, I think they got a lot of weapons, and I, and I don't think the cards are going to be able to match that. Also, if there's no Hopkins, no J.J. Watt, you know, it's, no, it's really tough for me, you know, to go towards the Cardinals. James Conner is questionable. You know, they got to hope he's in. Well, you know, it, missing Robert Woods, but still. It, it does sound like I know he was activated off of IR. It does sound like Watt is going to play, at least from what I saw. Um, but you know what it is for me? I just feel like I feel like I could see this being like a close game. Agreed. And and, yep. I, and I don't know who's going to have the lead, you know, when it when it comes to crunch time. But yeah. I, it feels like there is a, a mountain on Stafford's shoulders. And if he has to you know, lead a drive late. I, I just, that's fair. Yeah. It feels, it feels like, you know, he's bound to make a mistake. Um, now, granted, who knows, they might have the lead early and, right. you know, first ride, these and ride teams, it, but first time these teams played cards, one, uh, seven here, 38, 20, I believe 37, 20 and it was cards virtually all the way. Uh, teams faced a couple weeks or rather in summer 13, Rams won 30 to 23. So, you know, it's, it was two different games there. Great. It could go either way. This is definitely the coin flip of all the games this week for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, um, 
the, I think a big, uh, you know, during the season addition for the cards was Zach Ertz. I think he's been uh, Murray's kind of go-to target since Hopkins went down for sure. Um, I think he could have a, a pretty big game tomorrow night. Okay, so we shift gears to, yes, Jake, the NBA is something we definitely have to talk about because the Brooklyn Nets have been staying pretty close to the top of the Eastern Conference most of this season, all this season, and due largely to the fact that they had one piece in place the entire time by the name of Kevin Durant. Now he goes down. Fortunately, it's not a really serious injury, but they're going to lose him for a chunk of time. And this is a team that never has had its full lineup in place in any, on any given night, except for the right. more recent road game when they've had Kyrie Irving available. Yeah, so 3-2 MCL sprain. It's going to be out four to six weeks. As you said, huge yeah. blow. Kevin Durant, MV Thunder. Up to recently was probably at the top of that list, and he's out now. And you said huge blow for a team that really, to me, can't afford to give up too many spots because you know it's such a competitive Eastern Conference that just fluctuates between any given day among who's the best. You know, one day it's Milwaukee, another day it's Chicago. Recently, it was Brooklyn, especially them beating Chicago 138 112 on Wednesday after they were trailing in the half. But yeah, as you said, you're losing that engine of the offense. And he's a guy, again, who's averaging just under uh, 28 per game, averaging essentially double-double, almost triple-double per game. You know, he was doing utty human stuff on an already bad leg. So it's a huge blow for sure, and it's a big loss for this Nets team. That has been the most important aspect of his game. He's been dependable mm-hmm. because other guys have been able to step up when needed, but right. Mills. you always pencil in yeah. those points. Yeah. Now they got to make him up some other way. Yeah, and the big reason is going to be James Harden. He's going to be the number one again, and he's going to have to find that success he had not only last year, but really in Houston, and he's going to have to, you know, tap into that, especially when, you know, they're dealing with other injuries as well. Harris still isn't ready to return yet. Uh, Aldridge has been in and out of action. You know, Claxton, too, went down, and that was one of their bigs. So you're going to be playing a lot of small ball now if you're Brooklyn, and – that is something that benefits Harden because he did run that style pretty well under D'Antoni in Houston. And, but because you're gonna have guys like Kessler Edwards, uh, De'Aaron Sharp, Cam Thomas, great three three point shooters, secondary shooters as well, uh, great pick and roll action. But he's gonna have to be on top of his game because he's gonna be asked and probably going to produce about forty points per game for this Nets team to rack up wins against some of the better teams in the NBA, which they struggle to do. I think that's in Harden's game, though. I think it fits him better. He wants the ball in his hand that he wants to make plays. So you could see him shine in this. I I will agree with Matt, though. Like the, the dependability of those points is is going to hurt. Um, does Harden have enough in the tank to be able to do that for a month? Can he play for a month and then, you know, at times – you know, he gets to play with, with Kyrie, and then sometimes he doesn't get to play with Kyrie. Well, it's you know, the great it, thing about Harden has uh, been that yeah. he's been able to take on whatever role's been assigned to him. No complaints, no nothing. Like he's, like you say, KD's on the court. 
he doesn't have to be what he was in Houston. Now he does. Well, one one thing I was going to say, kind of you you brought it up a a little bit in your last point, Greg. You talk about, you know, Kyrie having him sometimes. Uh, I guess if you want to look at any bright side with uh, Durant going down now, it's that the next uh, nine of 11 games for the Nets are on the road. Um, So you will have uh, Kyrie as long as, you know, he, he can stay healthy. He decides to show up to me. But uh, I, I don't know if you guys heard the same thing I did uh, during the week was that there, the actual um, penalty for him to play at home games is just um, fines. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, it's a terrible look. Um, right. But with Durant going down and we, you know, we know how much pressure there kind of is on this team, it's kind of championship or bust. And this is already, you know, this, the second uh, rendition of, of this team. Um, you know, do, at what point do you have to have to think about, you know, maybe, I mean, the, the, the fines are pretty minimal too. I, if you look at it for yeah, your billionaire, like Sly family. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do, yeah, do you five do, grand? Yeah. Sorry. This, to me, this road trip, like that. trip's going to determine that because you said seven to nine on the road. Harden, he played 40 minutes yesterday. This was at home against New Orleans, 9-15. He had 15 as well as 27 points. So if you were able to get that production out of him, they won 120-105 pretty handily against New Orleans. So if you're able to get that, I don't think you have to worry too much about it. But, you know, as you said, it's going to be about not only Harden, but the team as a whole stepping up and these young guys as well filling in for the veteran role players who are out now. You know, you have Edwards, Sharp, Thomas, Essentially taking over the roles of Harris, Durant, Aldridge, Claxton. It's not going to happen, obviously, one to one. But you know, it's just as much on them as it is, you know, the stars like Irving or Harden to deliver. Well, meanwhile, yeah, the Knicks go- are above five hundred for the first time in a while, That's and both of them play tomorrow. And Brooklyn's in Cleveland. The Knicks have Charlotte at the Garden, yeah. one p.m. As we said, is part of the tradition. And I thought they had, a the great week this, they had a great week this week. They won all three of their games. They beat yep. San Antonio 111-96 Monday, uh, 108-85 on Wednesday. Uh, they won yesterday versus Atlanta at Atlanta, 117-108. And they're just finding their footing now offensively, and that's huge. You know, they have Julius Randle back. He's playing more impressive because he's really doing a good job creating shot opportunities. He's great at finding open shooters on the wing and his uh, fellow bigs, too, at the rim. He's doing a great job passing and also finding his way to the basket. And this Knicks team, they're starting to play team basketball a lot more, and it's working. So you have different guys leading the scoring, like Randall, mm-hmm. R.J. Barrett yesterday, 26 points. Evan Fournier starting to produce consistently, which he's really struggled with against teams not named Boston. And again, to beat a team that has Luka Doncic on their roster or a Trey Allen on the Trey Young on their roster, you know, that's it's not a small victory. You know, it matters for this team that's starting to find their and you talk about a good week, uh, you know, don't forget to mention, I think they made a pretty good deal um, in acquiring Cam Reddish. Um, I was actually at the game on Wednesday against Dallas, and I, I think, uh, well, you know, as a fan, I'm hoping, but I think, you know, if you're starting to look at the last, uh, you know, maybe week, week or, you know, 10 days uh, of games, is this the R.J. Barrett that we've been waiting to see this season? 
um, you know, a couple 30 point nights and he's really just doing it um, all over the place. And something I always focus on uh, when I was at the game, you know, he, when he's on the floor, he's guarding Doncic every time on the defensive end. So he's not, you know, he's not only scoring the basketball well and doing it on the offensive side, but he also is playing some pretty good defense. Um, Doncic was held to, uh, I think like right around 20 points, which, you know, obviously still decent, but for his, his usual over 25, sometimes, you know, sometimes over 30, um, they're just doing, they're doing a good job of late and, and Barrett's really looked good. And I think he's been the second best player in that draft, uh, pretty much hands down for kind of, um, sometimes all the criticism that he gets. Agree with you. I, I do like Barrett. I, I think he is starting to come into his own. Can he do it consistently? Um, that'll be the question. And I think that will be when you know he's transitioned really from, uh, you know, like a college esque player to being, you know, an NBA player where he can do it every single night where he gives you the same kind of production on a regular basis. Kind of going wet back to what Matt says, you knew Durant was going to deliver X amount of points. When are you going to get those X amount of points every night from Barrett X, you know, um, and you're right about the defensive stuff. He really does get it going on the defensive end. I did want to back up on that trade that you brought up as well, too. I think the, uh, the Cam Reddish trade is going to be a win-win for both teams. Um, I think obviously uh, the Knicks getting Cam Reddish, I think it's a new, new location from a new spot, but see what he, what he can do and deliver. Um, and I don't think you're giving up a ton in that, you know, you're not playing Kevin Knox anyway, and you're giving up a first round pick, but you're going to be in the middle of the pack. So what's your first round pick going to be anyway, you know, after the, after the, you know, after the, the lottery, uh, you're not going to be in the lottery, hopefully. And if if you're not in the lottery, then what are you really giving up? You're giving up a role player. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So and so, I looked at the at the, the the second round pick and the first round pick and stuff. That that's cosmetic. That's like window dressing to me. I think giving up Kevin Knox, getting Cam Reddish, giving them two new locations to play. I think that's a win win for both teams. Unfortunately, Reddish is hurt, right? So we're not going to see him for for a couple of days. You know, Kenneth, what's the 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 issue with Reddish? Is his foot, I think, or his ankle? Ankle, I think. Ankle, yeah. Uh, yeah. So and what are we looking at, 10 days or something like that with him being out? Yeah, somewhere around there. I think he's going to miss the next couple games. Well, Thibodeau did say they they may have to wait a while, so maybe a bit more than a couple games. But, yeah, I think when he comes back, he's missed the last nine games to Achilles soreness. When he comes back, though, he will be uh, a strong part in that lineup. I mean, probably starting out coming off the bench, and from there he'll prove if he could be among the starters – 